Ahoy hoy! This is Alpha Bunga Bunga. You're listening to the second half of our chat with Lee Phillips, in which we firstly talk a bit more about collapsed porn and reactionary deep greens before moving on to the innovation desert of contemporary capitalism, automation, and UBI. Basically, the wages are too damn low, and if you want liberatory technological advance, then you need upward pressure on wages. Hope you enjoy it. We definitely did. Now, the reason this is split into two parts is that we strive to keep our episodes shortish, about 40 minutes to an hour. So if you happen to think that's too short, do get in touch with us. And actually, for that matter, if you want to message us to say, you know, why the fuck haven't you covered what's going on in southeastern Bangistan or northwestern Ruritania? Or for that matter, why the fuck you aren't talking about, you know, high-tech, feminist, fascio, Luddite, communitarianism or whatever newfangled, hip ideology the kids are into these days, then definitely email us at alphabungabunga at gmail.com or get us on Twitter or Facebook. Now here's us talking a little bit more to Lee Phillips. Hope you enjoy. Bye-bye. Um, I was going to ask it like a really silly question to start with, and I'm kind of embarrassed after having written it down, <laughs> reading it back over. Um, but you, what's your fa- what's your favorite collapse porn? Um, <laughs> what's my favorite collapse? Porn? Yeah, what give, what gives you a collapse erection? Actually, would be the way to put it. Um, I think uh, probably the day after tomorrow is the best one. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's so wrong. It's like it's, it gets the science so badly wrong. Um, so. That's probably my favorite one. He also has two two great scenes. One of um, the, the people running and then the freezing earth just kind of almost catching up with them. And then, of course, that, that famous uh, end scene of them burning books, which is like, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Have you seen Geostorm, by the way? I haven't. Um, I, I want to see it, but uh, it, it, it the reviews are, uh, it says that it's absolutely appalling. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's it got even- 30 a bad way apparently yeah um it's it, if, if you yeah if you're up for a kind of quite tongue-in-cheek um bit of disaster uh ecological disaster action with no thought in at any point then it's quite good actually <laughs> um but did doing did kind of writing this book and thinking about all of this did it would you say like it made you a connoisseur and maybe even a purveyor of collapse porn <laughs> um uh, you know what I, I did do uh, quite a bit of uh, was <clears throat> I went onto a lot of uh, Reddit and uh, other other sites where there was a lot of photographs of um, sort of abandoned playgrounds and abandoned uh, amusement parks and abandoned shopping malls. Um, partially, it was because I needed an idea for a cover for something on the cover. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, it, I, I, I guess I kind of got the aesthetic, like there's, there's a certain dark, um, uh, dark poetry to it. Um, uh, um, yeah, I wouldn't, one of the weird things is that I, I, even though intellectually, scientifically, I have a, a, a critique of collapsed porn and, and, and austerity ecology, um, I definitely think that um, aesthetically, I I appreciate. It. I think you know a lot of dark music, a lot of sort of dark ambient sort of music, and yeah. not not to suggest that that actually is associated with um, with uh, with collapse horn. Although some is, some definitely is. Um, um, but you know, even the Dark Mountain project of um, of what's his name, Paul Kingsnorth. 
you know, some of the poetry uh, there, I mean, Paul Kingsworth himself is, is actually a very good writer. Um, uh, there's, there's a, there's a real reason that he was, he was long listed, uh, for his, his novel, the, uh, the Booker long, Booker long listed for his novel, The Wake. Uh, there's, there's, there's something I get there aesthetically. It's just, it's just wrong. Well, like, like any, <laughs> like any good, true conservative, he's got a, a good appreciation for aesthetics, I guess. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's a good way of putting it. Um, it's, it's fascinating that he comes from. Uh, the anti-globalization movement, or what was called the anti-globalization, and I guess what we called at the time the global justice movement. So, it, you know, he's a few years older than me, but it's, he, he was definitely part of that, that milieu. And um, his first book, I think, was One No, Many Yeses, which was yeah. sort of... Yeah, yeah, that's right. There are tons of these anti-globalization books coming out at the time. That was just one of them. <laughs> I don't think it, it did it anywhere near as well as, as No Me Clients, No Logo. But... Um, um, and I definitely think there was a sort of conservative element to, to that. So you can, you can, yeah. it's not so much a break uh, in terms of a conservative trajectory as I think it was always there. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think there was, there is a, there's a great, at least I think in fact, Paul Kingsnorth more than anything, if anybody demonstrates the continuity, in fact, I think it's him because the, the turning away from globalization, the romanticization of the local, um, that was present even at the national level. And it was interesting to read in your book how it's kind of, because I haven't followed him. I mean, my, um, my academic discipline is international relations. So I was aware of him in his anti-globo days. So I haven't followed him more recently as you have. So it's very interesting to see that it's kind of collapsed into Anglo-Saxon anglo-saxon nostalgia yeah. um i like the dark mountain though the thing i think that's the best about it it sounds though like the craziest kind of you know um some obscure corner of eastern europe you know like some kind of fascist militia from you know the forests of romania or some you know something like that just totally insane kind <laughs> of reactionaries from the 1920s <laughs> i mean i do I, it, we are beginning to begin to see in some parts of the world a crossover of 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 this this aesthetic this this politic with some more um overtly reactionary positions so for example um the uh five star movement in italy beppe grillo um and <clears throat> alex i'm sure you're much more familiar with this than i am uh, uh but um the the combination of a sort of localist um uh often sort of green oriented um, uh, uh, ecological politic mm. with anti anti immigrant, um, anti European in uh, in both in some of the more progressive sense of a critique of the, the European Central Bank and so on, but in also in the very genuinely negative sense of a sort uh, of um, uh, nationalism. Yeah, uh, you know you see that with uh, going back to Paul Kingsnorth as well. He wrote an essay in the Guardian a couple of months ago about Brexit and localism and ecology. And it was it was a very strange essay to read because, um, I mean, my position, as you, as you probably know, is, 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 is softly in favor of Brexit, uh, be, having been a journalist in Brussels for, for many years. Um, I covered uh, what, I mean, I arrived in Brussels uh, very much uh, sort of a critical supporter of the, the idea of, of of the European Union, but uh, throughout the coverage of it, I, I came to realize how how undemocratic it was, and how difficult or even impossible it was to democratize it. There's no sort of structural uh, mechanism there for, yeah. for, for 
so I so I do think so. <clears throat> um, so I have a uh, I have a critique of some of the um, the arguments within the UK and less so on the continent that that all of the the Brexit vote was some some sort of nativist anti uh, anti immigrant xenophobic reaction. Um, however, Paul Kingsnorth's um, argument in this essay is exactly that. Mm, yeah, this very strange uh, sort of uh, uh, melange of, of of localist ecology with, I, I would say, actually, a sort of English nationalism. It's um, and it's and it's funny because I remember kind of making, yeah, no, I know I find it funny because remember recalling back to kind of the late mid two thousands. Uh, when I remember being involved in a lot of arguments kind of against environmentalism um, or at least against its reactionary tendencies and trying to draw out these elements, which people just kind of laughed away like, oh, yeah, you know, the the Nazis were all in favor of organic and whatever, you know, that sort of line of argumentation. Um, whereas there's some contemporary movements which are kind of pulling those threads out for us, as it were, you know, kind of in practice demonstrating the lineages between kind of old form of reactionary politics in contemporary environmentalism and the new form of kind of reactionary politics. Yeah, I would, I, 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 I would not be, I mean, we're, we're living in a very interesting period where um, all sorts of strange new ideologies are, are, are sort of bubbling, <clears throat> bubbling up and emerging. Um, and I, I would not be at all surprised that if in, excuse me, in, in the coming years that some sort of more overt, um, uh, overtly reactionary, um, not necessarily fascistic, but certainly quite, quite, quite right-wing um, uh, sort of politic emerges out of out of deep ecology. Yeah, um, well, I th- and I think that's actually a really good place to actually properly get started because um, that's what this podcast is all about and trying to do, trying to identify these kind of new strange right. ideological... <laughs> <laughs> no, but trying to identify new ideological and political configurations which kind of seem strange to us, but... Um, but which we have to try to get to grips with and try to understand. Um, one of the strongest chapters in, in the um, Collapse Porn book is the chapter on innovation, on innovation desert. Of um, well, I've written innovation desert here by accident in my notes. <laughs> I stumbled over that. Um, yeah, it's what you get at the end, a bit of innovation. Um, it, so the innovation desert of of contemporary capitalism that, you know, this idea that we were promised jetpacks and so on, that even within a sort of Keynes, the, the sort of Keynesian capitalist trajectory, Keynes himself imagining that we'd have much higher tech, um, have a much higher tech future than we currently have, uh, that we would have consequently also fewer hour labor hours as well is something that's also not come to fruition. Um, so... I wanted to kind of discuss another issue, which is, you know, in relation to this, that the end of socialism as um, as a both as a sort of internal pressure within capitalism, as well as, you know, even the existence of the Soviet Union as as a threat to to bourgeois states, um, that that pressure put pressure on capitalists to innovate um, and to and to also to create reforms and so on. And that the end of that has led to the kind of stagnation slump that we that we're living through. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, in that chapter, I sort of steal from a lot of other thinkers. Uh, it's not necessarily uh, my uh, my idea. But, no, but it's a know, great people, synthesis of it. I thought. Well, uh, shocks, thanks. Uh, but <laughs> there are a lot of a lot of a lot of people who've made the argument that um, that labor fundamentally is the, or rather, the price of labor, cost of labor, is 
is at the end of the day the the biggest driver of the adoption of any sort of new technologies of innovation. Um, if if uh, if labor is so cheap that it is that it the cost of producing the uh, these commodities is 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 less if you employ humans and if you buy a whole bunch of new robots that have you know a certain lifespan um, and the the cost amortized over the life of that robot it results in uh, when when you do the calculations that it's it's actually turns out to still be cheaper to hire humans because labor has been so cowed uh, the the class um, has been uh, fundamentally the the militancy the power of the class was fundamentally broken at least from the west in the late 70s, early 1980s, um, you're not going to adopt that uh, that technology, that that innovation. I'm, I'm making the argument again, as I say, it's not my argument, um, but that labor is the is the fundamental driver of uh, of, of of advance in society. Uh, that capital um, capital is now without an enemy. Uh, yeah. Capital, ironically, now it has you know it's the dog that has caught the car. Um, you know, dogs running after a car, and you always the, the 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 old cartoon. Well, what does the dog do when it's ca- finally caught the car? If that ever happened, the dog wouldn't have any idea what to do with the the car. And I think it's the same thing. Capital is the dog that has finally caught the car. Um, yeah, uh, capital. Pa- Sorry. And, and no, and, that, and that's something that that our very own Phil Phil Cunliffe uh, also is an issue he tackles in his in his also zero books publication. Um, Which is just said that at the beginning, Phil. Uh, Phil I, I, that, I loved that book. That was just so awesome. Oh, shucks. Thanks. <laughs> um, I, I, I quite liked your book too, man. This is great. <laughs> what a love in. What a great love in this thing. <laughs> um, know, it, was, it, was, it was like, I mean, I, I talk about collapse porn, but this was like, uh, I don't know, socialist porn. It was, <laughs> it was so good. But but in all seriousness, it makes, as you, as you say, it makes a very similar argument. That's what, sort of what I wanted to um uh to to say when i when i'm saying that i'm not the originator of this this conception of 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 uh of this antagonism between capital and labor being the the driver of of innovation or at least the adoption of innovation it's um yeah, i saw that yeah uh, it, no and we're living through the, we're living through the cult- sorry go ahead argument that um you know there there was a war and the bad guy, the, the good guys lost um that was very, very depressing. Uh, but I, I mean, I, I'd always sort of located the, the defeat in the, the late 1970s, 1980s, and you sort of locate the defeat in 1917, basically. But it's a similar argument. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I, to, to go back to the question of innovation, I mean, it's, you know, the, the attenuation of the conflict between capital and labor, labor as a fundamental driver of technological progress. Um, you know, we're living with the consequences of that now and i think i mean i remember one thing which quite influenced me funnily enough it's one of these it's a very it's one of these very short introduction books but by the cambridge economist robert c allen uh, who looks at very long-term economic growth and what's led to it um and it's innovation but what's what's driven innovation has been high wages so it starts in britain in in the 17th century that britain had higher wages and that's what drives progress which is complete um, would be a, a, a very strong argument against uh sort of neoclassical notions um, and and against sort of contemporary arguments for austerity about, you know, 
repressing wages as a way of of re, uh, of kickstarting growth. You know, maybe it's actually it's the opposite. It's remarkably ignorant of of, of exactly how uh, innovate innovative technologies have have always historically been adopted. Um, I mean, uh, today I. I wouldn't say that there's nothing new that's uh, nothing new under the sun. I mean, there's a, there's who knows there there there's potentially interesting, uh, utterly transformative uh, possibilities with with biotechnology. I think um, on the scale of you know the invention of human flight or the discovery of electricity or the internal combustion engine, that that the potential is there. But will it be adopted? Will it fundamentally be um, uh, be allowed to live up to its potential so long as um, uh, labor isn't uh, dis- uh, labor does not need to be displaced by its potentialities um, yeah I, I think know. one of the hard things about some of these discussions though is also making it concrete in terms of people's experience and life um, because the experience uh, the ordinary kind of experience is still of um, novelty you know, the next kind of iPhone, um, the next, um, you know, the next app or this kind of thing. So, um, you know, and you can reject that in a kind of anti-consumerist gesture, but the experience of, um, you know, there's experience of kind of dynamism. And it's difficult to convey to people, I think, um, without kind of extensive historical detail, uh, just how limited and superficial that dynamism is, you know, because you do need a long kind of... um, historical memory or awareness at least to be able to convey that yes and i think uh, people like robert gordon do a very good exa- uh, yeah. Yeah. job of explaining uh, that 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 trajectory you know um if you were born in um um 1870 or 1880 and and you died in uh, you know a, a hundred you had a really nice long life and you lived 100 years the the transformation that you would have seen uh from the delivery of electricity um, through uh, human flight, um, um, being able to speak at a radio, uh, being able to speak instantaneously across across the Atlantic, um, and that within you know uh, a couple of decades, handful of decades after um, uh, Kitty Hawk, you have jets, and then not that much later, um, uh, humans on the moon. Uh, there has been. Nothing on the scale of that, that sort of decade after decade of, of radical transfer, the invention of uh, uh, or discovery of antibiotics and plastics and all of these things, you, the life that you would have experienced was uh, a, a, a constant process of utter radical transformation every few years in some area of life. Um, we have not seen that. No. It, if and people talk about in- people end up talking about smartphones, right? I mean, this is where that discussion yeah. always goes. And as, as yeah, but, and, but it's the only one. I mean, I think that's the point. It's yeah. not that it's insignificant, but it's the only kind of one that has mm-hmm. uh, radically kind of changed people's uh, life and experience. Well, that's partly because all of the things which change our life and experience are now condensed into this into this one object. But <clears throat> yeah, I, I think the the pace of change across the twentieth century I, and late nineteenth yeah. was would just have been made your head spin. Yeah, it's not that it's not that nothing has changed, uh, but how so little has changed, um, and even the uh, you know, the miniaturization of, of mobile telephony and the, uh, the the spread of the internet. This that that has been pretty transformative, but it's it's one thing. Yeah. 
uh, compared to uh, the, the, the rainbow of other of innovations. And just like we're talking about over the last 40 years, that's the one big new thing, really, is the internet and mobile telephony. And, uh, and, then, and then you get the productivity question as well, which is that the productivity gains from that have been kind of more underwhelming than, than a lot of yes, people absolutely. hoped for. And even uh, these technologies, uh, the, the spread of them has, has occurred over the last 40 years, but they were invented prior to, uh, they were invented in the 1960s, basically. Uh, so the, the, the scale of in innovation that has happened over the last 40 years really is, it, it, once you have this historic understanding of the historical arc of technological change, it really is profoundly underwhelming. Uh, I'm constantly struck how um, my, my adult life seems to be just so similar. Nothing really changes um, since the 1990s. I don't, like, life seems so much the same. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a personal anecdote. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, people, people <laughs> might listen and just be like, you should, you should just get out more, Lee. That's... <laughs> <laughs> But I think that, but I think that, say, if you were, uh, if you were uh, born in the 1970s or 1980s in China, yeah, I think your life would have radically uh, transformed. Yeah, and I think, I think that's right. I mean, the 90, you know, so the 1990s is the consumer internet that it really begins, you know, kind of internet penetration with, um, for ordinary kind of people, it becomes within the realm of affordability and is, uh, you know, that happens over the last 20 years or so. Um, and that's, uh, you know, and then maybe in the last 10 years, kind of smartphones have really taken off and become accessible to um, the majority of people on the planet and in the West, at least very high end kind of sophisticated smartphones. And beyond that, you're right. I mean, you know, life hasn't changed that dramatically in terms of the awareness of understanding of an exposure to those kinds of um, consumer technologies. But I mean, aren't we being a little um, bit glib in dismissing the radical potential and tremendous advance that is represented by the ability to put dog ears and a little dog nose on your face and take a picture of it. <laughs> because, you know, lots of people are looking a lot cuter than they used to be. That is important. Increased I, cuteness. I, I do think there's something to, um, uh, to the argument that the connection of um, potentially all of humanity to a, I mean, we joke about it calling it the hive mind, but but there's something there. Yeah, um, Wikipedia, I think, yes. does illustrate that. Uh, yeah, no, Wikipedia, absolutely. Um, the ability to to check information to to uh, I, writing my book, uh, the 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 amount of research that I was able to to draw upon um, fairly rapidly with the assistance of the internet would never have been able to, to, to happen um, uh, 20 years previously into, uh, by going to, even to a very, very well-stocked public library. Um, and that's, that's, that's interesting. That's, um, that is a genuinely new thing and a, I think a positive development. My, so my argument, I think anybody here uh, having this, this conversation would not, would not want to say there's been no innovation. But again, that however impressive the internet is, it is one thing, whereas the, the the first half of the 20th century, latter half of the um, the 19th century, we're talking about that scale of radical transformation um, happening every few years, whether it's uh, uh, 
spread of electricity, uh, radio telephony, um, internal combustion engine, flight, plastics, antibiotics, and so on and so forth. The germ theory of... Uh, one, is- I mean, one innovation we have forgotten uh, is obviously podcasting. And that is obviously the most significant innovation, I think, of recent times. And we should, you know, give a big shout out to that innovation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's like radio, but totally not like radio. Um, <laughs> but I, I think so to, to move things on and maybe the kind of last kind of big topic to talk about um, this sort of discussion about, you know, the innovation desert and so on brings into question a lot of the froth, I think, that's written about automation. Um, because as exciting as it is for any socialist, the idea that one might be able to radically reduce the amount of human drudgery um, that is caused by, you know, by la- t- taking the form of, of labor, of having to sell your labor. Uh, at the same time, one questions about, you know, how much investment there will actually be in that. And Lee, you've already made reference to this. Um, but one of the common accompaniments more social, uh, this more social side of the the, the economic discussion around uh, automation uh, ends up being about a, the introduction of universal basic income as one of right. as the kind of the big catch-all solution <clears throat> to massive technological unemployment brought in by innovation. Uh, and I think maybe part of how you part of your response to the idea of a UBI depends also uh, on your understanding of how likely mass automation will actually be. But even assuming that there will, that there will be some degree of, of automation in the coming years, which will displace a lot of labor, you know, I mean, do, do we think that universal basic income is, is, a, is a good solution or at least a good demand to organize around? Uh, what are your thoughts on this, Lee? Because I know you, you, you think a fair bit about these questions. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I went from a position of um, uh, sort of loose support for uh, universal basic income to, to, to strong opposition, uh, largely off the back of um, uh, a Canadian magazine out of the prairies called Briar Patch. The, the editor had uh, said, hey, you know about technology and stuff. You're the science writer. Um, uh, could we get you to write an article on, on universal basic income? And I went into it broadly supportive, and I came out of it very much opposed. Um, I think part of it comes down to uh, exactly what we've just been talking about in terms of um, a, a lack of recognition of, of the, dr- the fundamental driver of innovation, or at least the adoption of innovation, is is the price of labor. If there's all this, this uh, currently there's a lot of conversation about um, uh, automatic um, uh, vehicles, automated vehicles, in particular automated trucking. In the film Logan, um, we which supposedly is set in some sort of near future, we see uh, these automated trucks uh, driving along the highway. So it's, you know, it's a very um, uh, current concept. But we're already seeing the um, related development of electric uh, trucking, but the cost is huge. It's vast. Now, even if it comes down, well, that's interesting. But so long as this vast cost of, of, of electric automated trucks um, is more expensive than just employing humans, these corporations will not go down that road. Um, it, it, it's a, the, the assumption of widespread automation misses this historic argument about um, uh, why the role of labor and the price of labor in these, in these decisions. And the second uh, aspect of this, which is, which is so challenging from a technological perspective, um, um, uh, a pers- perspective, 
relating to unemployment is that it's just never happened in history before that um, technological uh, development has resulted in, in mass unemployment, it, even though every single time there is some major technological change, there is a raft of essays and, and, and column inches uh, fretting about the sudden, the, 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 the looming uh, mass unemployment that's going to happen. You know, in, I, I can't remember the exact, uh, I don't have the exact uh, dates to, to, to mind, but something like at the end of uh, the, um, the 18th century, uh, something like 2%, or sorry, uh, 2% of the, the American population was not engaged in some form of agricultural labor. And today, uh, less than 2% is involved in some form of agricultural labor as a result of, of technological change. Now, it's not the case that 98% of Americans are unemployed. Um, uh, this, the, 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 uh, the industrialization of agriculture, the technologies and other technologies that, that, that occurred over, the, over this period created all sorts of new industries that heretofore had not been imagined. And those needed to, humans to, to to work in them, and I think it's it will be the same with uh, with automation and uh, artificial intelligence. Now, the argument from the counter argument uh, from from the promoters of UBI's uh, ah, but this time it's different. Well, you'd have to explain why it's different, and I and I have not been convinced yet that that, that there is a good argument as to as to, to why it's different. So that's that's the first argument around UBI in terms of. I, I just I just don't buy the argument that there's going to be this mass unemployment uh, as a result of technological change. Yeah. And um, the second ar argument, I think, against uh, UBI is, uh, well, gosh, there, there's many of them. Um, but fundamentally, I, I don't like the idea of this massive extension of welfareism. Um, that uh, while I'm not opposed to, to welfare as a socialist, um, I think that our argument historically for for uh, for unemployment insurance and for for for, for welfare programs um, was that this was supposed to be the the safety net. The um, when when everything else isn't working in the economy, at least we we can take care of everybody. But it wasn't supposed to be something that was structural. That was always supposed to be there. Um, it was supposed to be an indication of how how uh, of of the failure of capitalism to deliver full employment. Um, um, I, and that's the demand that I think that we should be we should be fighting for uh, is full employment and a shortening of the the, the working week. Um, um, I, I get the, the the desire for a reduction in, in drudgery, and I would love to and to to expand the amount of free time everybody has. But to divide to bifurcate the economy between though that minority of people who continue to work and taxes upon whom or what are supposed to deliver the minimum income for everybody, this mass of other people who just, who, who get to do nothing basically, um, paint or, or play soccer or, or whatever it happens to be. Um, we already have challenges uh, with respect to a lot of working people who get very frustrated with people who are in welfare. I think some of that is a problematic perspective I think it's the, the lowest on the totem pole or the second lowest on the to totem pole sneering the people who are just even lower on the totem pole. Nevertheless, I think there's a kernel of a socialist instinct there in that uh, labor is rewarding. Everybody is supposed to participate in the, the benefit towards the benefit, the overall benefit of society. society. Um, uh, everybody should put their shoulder to the wheel. Um, 
and those who decide not to. Um, and it, to some extent, there's this this right instinct that you should be shaming these people for for not now. As socialists, we recognize that that's actually not how it's working. That uh, it's uh, that it is more the case that uh, capitalism is failing to deliver uh, full employment, or even that there are political decisions to optim to you know to optimize the the, the rate of unemployment to keep uh, to keep um, uh, wages down. But nevertheless, um, um, yeah, I guess returning to uh, to, my, to my argument is that welfareism was never supposed to be the or a socialist solution. It was always supposed to just be a stopgap, and UBI or its advocates seem to um, turn something that was uh, this band aid into a goal. Yeah, and well, I have and, a real antipathy towards that. Yeah, and that world looks a lot like a kind of kind of um, weirdly filtered through vision of actual communism in the sense of a greater expanded freedom that your need you know that your needs are met that you that your contribution to society is based on what you can contribute uh and and then you know your, your needs are met according to, to to what they might be so except that it happens within kind of a capitalist integument right you know that it that it's uh, it happens in a capitalist shell so it seems to me like an attempt to kind of create socialism within or rather more accurately yeah. create communism within a capitalist shell yeah. and you know i think that, that fundamentally that even if it were desirable it's impossible um that's not going to happen yep. and so what you see is a proliferation of kind of right you know a ubi is is very popular apparently in silicon valley and so you get these sort of right-wing versions libertarian versions of ubi which really just seem to be a way of actually cutting welfare payments overall um, and just a way of dealing with people they view as redundant, um, which I think is problematic. And, and you know, I, I don't see the, how the po what form the politics take, which is able to sustain a UBI of a high enough level, you know, a high enough payments um, to actually give people a dignified life. Yeah, that, absolutely. The... Um... Uh, Finland that is experimenting with uh, with a basic income program at the moment. Uh, the the aim behind it is to eliminate its its welfare state entirely. So not just say welfare payments or unemployment insurance, but the entirety of of of, of the structure of the welfare state. So in, like things like public education and uh, public health care, uh, and there are all sorts of public programs beyond uh, sort of welfare programs that I do think are, are if you simply gave a, 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 an amount of money over to a family, to a household to spend, um, it would be very, very difficult for them to rationally um, plan how they spend that money with respect to um, um, uh, uh, health care. Uh, I think it's a very good thing that um, sort of expertise around um, uh, the planning of, of healthcare is in, in the best of, 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 of Western states out of, outside the United States. Those are, um, those are democratically decided outside of the market. I think that's, that's the, the very complicated decisions, uh, uh in terms of planning and, um, uh, sort of dedicated programs, uh, similarly with, with, with education, I, I, I just a lump sum payment in, in place of, all these very carefully crafted programs, I think, would be would result in in disaster, um, social disaster. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. And I guess that turns, I, and it ends up turning everyone into a consumer and nothing more than a consumer. Yes. And I guess, you know, lots of people who are enthusiastic about UBI might be on the sort of green left. And it's funny that them being having certain anti-consumerist tendencies would also be in favor at the same time of turning everyone yeah. into nothing more than a consumer. It's the marketization of everything. Yeah. Um, and similarly, in order to, there's conversations about the good UBI and the bad UBI. So the, the defenders of the UBI uh, from the left will say, well, you know, the Silicon Valley version is not what we want. We want the existing welfare state plus. And even at a very, very simple level, very, very moderate uh, basic income of just a few thousand, uh, you know, a few thousand dollars a, a year, the, the amount of taxation you have to raise to, 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 to pay for that is you know various different calculations calculations have been made around this and it's it's on the scale of um, existing public spending so you're basically talking about a a whole um, another uh, scale of the welfare state and people will say um, yeah can't we have the imagination that we could we could do that say well okay you know that's interesting in terms of the scale of wealth uh, um, uh, expropriation that's that's an interesting ambition. But in order to have that scale ambition, you'd have to have this incredibly militant <clears throat> um, uh, labor movement to make that demand. The, the current balance of forces, uh, current balance of forces, does not suggest that. And but if you have that scale of of, of, of working class militancy, why stop there with a UBI? I mean, yeah. <laughs> if, if basically you need the scale of, uh, of of militancy to deliver socialism in order to deliver a good UBI. Yeah. But if you got the scale of milk and deliver socialism, why would you need a UBI? You've got socialism. That's, yeah. that's no, precisely I think that's, it. It's a really good point. Okay, that's it for this week. But actually, we are back in only three days' time when we have Sean Jacobs from Africa as a Country on to talk about the contemporary politics of South Africa and what comes next there. Remember to subscribe, tell your friends. Catch you later. Bye-bye.